You know, over the last few weeks, we've actually been exploring in this message series called Beautiful, Disappointing, Hopeful. We've been talking about how these three words actually depict the human experience, but they also depict the Christian story, especially this word hopeful, which we're actually going to be addressing today. And, uh, you know, as we talk about, as we reflect on the Christian story, I think there's moments that all of us wrestle with where there's moments of beauty and joy and goodness, and yet there's times of disappointment as well. Um, in fact, I want to give a shout out to Howard and Ophelia. They got engaged yesterday, everyone. Did you know if you guys knew that? Just want to give a, a shout out. Um, and in the first service venue, and Kathleen got engaged as well. So, I mean, there's all sorts of wonderful moments that we celebrate, and yet the real life whether you're a Christian or you're not, you just have to be a human being to know that there's these moments of celebration, and yet there's also these moments of great tragedy and longing and fear and sadness, um, not only around the world that's happening in the Middle East, but also friends and families of ours in the city who are also suffering as a result of this crisis. And you know, as we've been reflecting on the Christian story being beautiful, disappointing, hopeful, we've been talking about how, how do Christians understand how we live in this world? And really, it comes down to these two questions. Is Christianity true? Is it something that's objectively true, something that I can place my faith in firmly? Uh, and is it compelling? Is it compelling enough that in the midst of a life of beauty and disappointment, um, that it's something that I can orient my life around? Now, this tension between beauty and disappointment, like I mentioned, whether you're someone of faith or not, all of us feel this tension. How do I navigate this world? In fact, Henry David Thoreau, uh, one of the transcendentalist philosophers in the 19th century, he has this quote where he says, the mass uh, of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And here's what he was getting at. You see, he was getting at this fundamental human problem. And it's the human problem of how do we navigate beauty and disappointment? And what is life all about, especially when difficulty comes, when suffering comes, when pain comes, when death comes, when these moments that are hard to kind of make sense of as a human being, not as a religious person, just as a human being, when I get confronted with life itself, why is it that so many of us live lives of quiet desperation? You know, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, when he writes about our secular age, what he talks about, he uses the words haunting eminence. He talks about this haunting eminence that we feel. And what we do to fill this haunting eminence, right, this longing for purpose, that whether you're religious or you're not, looking for meaning and purpose in the world around us. And... Many of us, we just kind of amuse ourselves as much as possible. We go to Netflix, we go to the news, we go to video games, we go to whatever we can to somehow numb any kind of quest for what truth or meaning is all about. We live these lives of quiet desperation. Now, the Christian story is one that talks about how in the midst of pain, in the midst of beauty and disappointment, there's actually a way of hope that comes from a faith in a God that we can trust in. Now, there's an author named Ray Johnston. Ray Johnston actually wrote a book called The Hope Quotient. And Ray Johnston, it, this book was actually born out of a conversation he was having with his daughter. His daughter, when she was in university, she was taking a class on leadership. And in this class on leadership, he she was tasked with interview the best leader you know. And she chose her dad. Isn't that cool? I mean, all the dads in the house are like, I hope my daughter chooses me one day, you know? But... She, she chose him, and she had a, a list of questions for him. And one of the questions that she asked is, of all the things that you do, Dad, and, and Ray is a pastor of a large church and leads this organization, uh, fundraises, mobilizes people for, for humanitarian causes. She said, of all the things that you do, what's the most important thing that you do? And 
She was ex- expecting this kind of answer about vision casting, uh, you know, pooling resources, being have strategic foresight. And he said, oh, the most important thing that I do is staying encouraged. Staying encouraged. Because here's what he realizes as a human being and as a leader, is that the moment that he loses courage, the moment that he starts to lose hopefulness, he realizes he's done. Because here's what it does. He wallows, he begins to wallow and spiral into this moment where he just wants to give up. I mean, have you ever been there before? I mean, you and I know what that's like, to be in a job situation where you start to lose courage or you start to lose hope. Or in a relationship, different counselors will talk about how the beginning of the end is when one party begins to lose so much hope and the thought is things will never change. And so when Ray talks about in his book, Hope Quotient, he talks about how the fundamental human need of every person is this need to maintain this level or this hope quotient in each of our lives. And what does it look like for us to be able to do that? Now, here's what's so stunning, because it's irrespective of circumstance, uh, because circumstances change for every single one of us. It doesn't matter how many resources you have, what neighborhood you live in, circumstances change for all of us. Death, suffering comes for all of us. Now, here are the circumstances, for instance, of the early church. If we were to investigate the story of the early church. Now, the early church was founded by Jesus, who's this carpenter, who's you know, part of this peasant family, born in Bethlehem of Nazareth. Uh, it's like he was from Staten Island or something. He was like from this weird, off-begone place. He, he's not from Manhattan. He's, this is who Jesus was. He was a nobody, a no-name person. And yet somehow this movement begins, especially in the backyard of Rome, where Rome has all the military might, all the money, all the financial capital. They have control over the media, everything. And yet somehow this Christian movement began in that, by Jesus. Now, Jesus dies and he resurrects from the grave. And in the year 40 AD, historians estimate that the the total population of the Christian movement at that time was around 1,000 people. Now, here's what happens, though. There's a fire that comes to Rome, and Nero, the emperor, begins to blame Christians and starts a persecution of Christians. So now Christians are now starting to be put to death uh, in the first century. And yet by 100 AD, look, the number went from 1,000 to about 7,000 to 10,000. And so over that next century, over the second century, persecution increases even more. People like Marcus Aurelius and others would begin to persecute Christians, burn them at the stake, and their families. And, you know, of course, because Rome had all the power in the world. Who are these Christians? Who are these no-name people? And yet somehow, in the face of tragic, awful circumstances, the Christian movement grows even more. What in the world is going on? Now, the population, historians estimate, is around 200,000. Then it enters into the century where some of the most intense persecution that Christians would undergo in the early church would come about. The Decian persecution, the Diocletian or great persecution comes. Christians are put to death. Their families are threatened. They're thrown in prison. And the number actually grows to five to six million. How in the world does this happen? Uh, I mean, this is, if you can imagine like impossible situations, there's actually the book of Revelation is written by John who's exiled to Patmos. So he's on this island 
John is, and he can't do anything because he's exiled in Patmos. And people are dying around him. He knows that the church is being persecuted. This Jesus movement is going to get snuffed out. And it's in that context that he writes the book of Revelation. Now, keep in mind, like, John is exiled on an island. There's no Wi-Fi. He can't do anything. He's got no laptop. He doesn't have a phone or a smartphone. He is just, like, powerless. All he knows is that Christians are suffering around. And he's like, this thing is going down. What in the world is going on? And then it's in that context that God gives this vision. Now, the early church, though, what was it about them that somehow, in the harshest of circumstances, they kept hope? Check out the passage that was read for us earlier. 1 Peter chapter 1. This is Simon Peter, who's one of the disciples of Jesus. Look at what he's writing to a group of persecuted churches in Asia Minor. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Can I hear you say living hope? hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. In all this, you greatly rejoice. In all the persecution and suffering. What are you talking about, Peter? Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. What, this mentality is ridiculous. Why is it that the earliest followers of Jesus could be talking about a living hope that people have in the face of persecution, torture, bloodshed? What in the world is happening here? Now, if you know anything about the story of Peter, he was one of Jesus' followers. He was a fisherman. He himself was this no-name person who was a fisherman. And he somehow gets called by Jesus, another no-name carpenter calls out this fisherman and says to this fisherman on you I choose you I'm going to use you to build this church so here's what happens to Peter Peter is someone that gets so I mean he gets filled with bravado he's like so like you know what I got this Jesus I know how to follow you so there's actually this passage in Mark chapter 14 check this out look at what it says Jesus is predicting his death Okay, and look at what how Peter responds. Jesus says to them, you will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And look at what Peter says. Peter declared, even if everyone else falls away, I will not fall away. I mean, don't you love this bravado? He says, truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. And I love this. Peter, he he basically tells Jesus that he's wrong. He tells Jesus that Jesus is wrong. Peter insisted emphatically, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Like these other cats, so scared. I'm not scared. I'm with you, Jesus. Sorry, that was my translation there. And all the others said the same. I, I mean, do you, do you catch this like a Brooklyn swagger Peter's got? He's just like, Jesus, I am with you. Jesus is like, listen, you're going to betray me. And Peter's like, you don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. Now, just a few verses later, Jesus gets arrested by a number of guards. And look at what happens to Simon Peter. Check this out. 
While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Jesus fellow, the Nazarene, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. And again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. We can hear it in your accent, bro. We got you, bro. You are one of them. And look at what happens. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them. He's definitely from Brooklyn. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him before the rooster crows twice. You will disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. This guy who had so much gumption. Broken by his own betrayal. Now, here's the thing. If you know anything about the story, this is not the end of the story because here's what happens. Jesus does go and he dies on the cross. And Jesus does resurrect from the grave. And you know what's so fascinating is that if you were to actually look in the history of the church, here Peter is broken, saddled in shame, feels like an abject failure. And what's crazy is that in the book of Acts, which is a historical account of the early church, look at what happens. Look at the description of Peter and how much he's changed. Check this out. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. When they saw, this is people, that all of a sudden they see the courage of Peter and John Who are these guys? They're getting thrown into prison and here they are preaching with such fire and audacity. They realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. This is crazy. This is stunning. All of a sudden, these no-name fishermen, here Peter is, who's now, all of a sudden, he goes from this broken weeping follower of Jesus into a man who's set on fire. He's so set on fire, he actually gets thrown into prison for preaching about Jesus. He gets thrown in, fearful of death. People are wondering, what's going to happen to Peter? And look at what happens. It says, on their release from prison, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Because you got to understand, people are now being thrown in prison. Peter and John are starting to tell people, the Christians were starting to get persecuted. And look at their prayer that they pray in this moment. Now, Lord, consider their threats. And in the midst of their threats, please, this girl that I've been trying to get to know really well, please have her fall in love with me. Can you please just, yeah, I don't like. Now, Lord, consider their threats. And God, would you just protect my family 
And so that my family, my kids can grow up and they can like, get into the best schools and make a lot of money. And hopefully they make enough money that they become my retirement plan. They take care of me. They buy a house in the Hamptons. Maybe I can live there as well as maybe have a place in the Upper East Side as well. Like, now, Lord, consider their threats. And God, please, please, please let the Jets make the playoffs, please. I want to see a parade in my lifetime with the New York Jets. Now consider their threats, God, and please, God, just like keep me safe from the world out there. And let me let me just huddle up with our own people and not care about what's happening out there. No, that's not what he prays. Check out what he prays. He says, "Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable." your servants, to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. He's like, been thrown in prison. God, make me more bold. Set me more on fire. Grant me a kind of fire and hopefulness that is uncommon in the world around me. Now, now it makes sense why Peter would write to persecuted churches in Asia Minor. This is why he writes, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, this is why he could write to the early church and basically talk about this living hope, not a wilting kind of faith or a wilting kind of hope, one that is kind of like on its last legs, even against all odds, being thrown in prison and persecuted. Somehow, Peter is able to say, no, 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 we have this living hope. And when these threats come against us, let me pray for more, God, more of this living hope that would animate my life, my bones, my soul. Now, here's a question. What in the world happened? Because here was Peter, and Peter was like this broken man, a shell of a man, weeping bitterly over his own betrayal of the one that he said he would, he would never betray. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. The resurrection really happened. Jesus really resurrected from the grave. He appeared to over 500 people and a people who were once saddled in shame and fear and broken and weeping, all of a sudden, they become men and women on fire who now, the resurrection really happened. And because the resurrection really happened, see, Peter could write to the church of Asia Minor John could write from being exiled in Patmos and they could write about this living hope that no matter what circumstances that you and I might find ourselves in, with Jesus, there is always hope. High five your neighbor and say, with Jesus, there is always hope. Whatever you've walked in with today, whatever moments perhaps we're you've begun to lose courage, lose hopefulness. 
Maybe it's an illness that you've been battling or someone that you love has been battling. Maybe it's a, a depression that you just feel like you just can't kick. Maybe you've just been in a season where you're longing for healthy relationships and it's been hard to find one. Maybe you've, you're a couple and you're going through a season of infertility and it's been difficult. With Jesus, there's always hope. When I was in college and I was broke, uh, a mentor of mine, when we were talking about the resurrection, he said, he said, hey, listen, if God can raise the dead, God can raise the bread. <laughs> He's like, God's going to take care of you, man. If God can raise the dead, God can raise the bread. Because if the resurrection really happened, here's what it means for all of us. It means that whatever difficulty or pain or loss we get confronted with, we believe in a God who defeated death. And if God can raise the dead, God can raise the bread. Whatever financial difficulties you might find yourself in, whatever roadblocks you found yourself in when it comes to a job search, do you realize that if God can raise the dead, God can raise the bread? I remember seasons of my life when I moved to New York City, went through a pretty significant season of depression. 9-11 happens, my grandmother dies, my uncle dies. I'm, I'm really starting to doubt God. And I just, I just remember these moments. If you've ever had these moments where you feel like you're going to lose hope. I remember a season when Tina and I, when um, we had a miscarriage, and it was so painful, and we didn't know who to share it with, and we had just a difficult kind of dark cloud, it felt like, that was hanging over us. Just even as recently as the pandemic and just wrestling with, like, the, the pain of the pandemic some of the pain that occurred related to break-ins that occurred, some of the anti-Asian sentiment that occurred during the pandemic continues. You know, there are these moments, and the reality is every single one of us, this is not unique to me, this is what it means to be a human being. Every human being goes through these moments of just like losing hope. And here's what the Jesus story is about, because here's someone like Peter Against all odds, he's talking about, hey, we've got this living hope. Because of this living hope, if God can raise the dead, you better believe God can raise the bread. What is it that you've come in here with today? What anxieties or fears? You know, I was talking to someone yesterday about uh, faith, and he was talking about how he said, you know, we, we, the idea of Christianity is like somehow I can entrust God with my entire soul, like my life, soul, destiny, I can trust God with. But somehow I can't trust him with my finances, my financial situation right now. <laughs> you know? He's like, you know, it's, it, it's like this weird thing. Like I trust God with God, my eternal destiny. I trust you, Jesus. But I'm not going to really trust you when it comes to this relationship thing that I'm going in through right now. 
But here's the reality. If God can raise the dead, God can raise the bread. Some of you, you're in between jobs right now and you're just not sure what to do. Families are going through difficult times. Some of you are parents of teenagers. That's it. You're just parents of teenagers and you're just, you know, like. Or some of you are teenagers with parents. (laughs) Ellie. (laughs) If God can raise the dead, God can raise the bread. Viktor Frankl, who's a Holocaust survivor, in the 1940s, he wrote this book called Man's Search for Meaning that's become this timeless text as he was reflecting on his own life journey as a survivor of the Holocaust. And he, he pens these observations of the people who survived, people that were able to make it through the Holocaust. And notice what he writes about his observations. He says, we who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man or a woman but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. What do we do in a a world that's between beauty and disappointment? We've got a choice. And one of the things that Viktor Frankl observes is those who were able to find a hope in a transcendent being or truth. And for us as Christians, this transcendent being is God who has sent Jesus to come into the world and he really resurrected from the grave. And today, whatever we go through in the midst of beauty and disappointment, The invitation is, will you choose hopefulness? Will you choose to believe in a God who can raise the dead? Because if God can raise the dead, God can... Thank you. God can raise the bread. See, the earliest Christians knew this. I mean, look at what the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Philippi. The Apostle Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ. I get Jesus if I live. He's writing from prison. He's like, if I get Jesus, I can live. Or if I, as I live, I get Jesus. And if I die, it's gain. Why? Because I get Jesus. Now, what? Like, these are crazy people. What are you talking about? How do you live with gratitude and grief and yet ultimately hope? And here the Apostle Paul is saying this. See, but this is no different than what Jesus would actually talk about. See, Jesus would actually teach his disciples and others. Look at what he says. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. See, Jesus was basically just giving this little hint that if God can raise the dead. God can raise the bread.